Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Earth News Interviews. My name is Dean. Joining me today is my co-host, Sophia. Hi. And we have a special guest today, Sam Athey. Hi, y'all. Sorry. (laughs) So, Sam, uh, we saw that you have a new paper out, and it was actually published and picked up in some mainstream uh, media websites. Congratulations Mm -hmm. on that. Thanks. So what is it that you tend to focus on in your uh, research? Yeah, so um, I'm currently uh, a third-year PhD candidate in uh, uh, Miriam Diamond's lab. I'm co-supervised by Miriam and uh, Chelsea Brockman in EEB. And I'm investigating the sources and pathways of microfibers, uh, so small textile fibers that shed from the threads that make up our clothing and the chemical contaminants associated with these fibers. Um, so their sources and pathways to the environment, as well as evaluating uh, mitigation me- measures um, to help prevent their release to the environment. Cool. So what actually got you interested in the earth sciences? Yeah. So <laughs> I um, actually grew up in Southwest Florida. So I've lived by the ocean Um, All my life, uh, I grew up in in the U.S. And um, I went to school for marine biology, which uh, I knew since like fifth grade, I wanted to be a scientist and really early on realized that marine biology and marine sciences are where it's at for me. And um, I remember being interested in high school on anthropogenic impacts on the ocean after uh, watching the effects uh, and the cleanup and to the BP oil spill in 2010. And so in my undergraduate degree, I started with this interest in anthropogenic impacts on the ocean, started studying plastic pollution and microplastics. So the small bits of plastic that contaminate aquatic environments, primarily focusing on the marine environment. And um, so in my undergraduate and my master's research, I looked at the effects of these microplastics on marine wildlife and food webs, and then still interested in microplastics, I uh, came across this posting for a PhD position in Miriam Diamond's lab, looking at um, how microfibers, which are a form of microplastics, how they interact with chemicals in the indoor environment and what's the, and, and their potential role as a vector for these indoor contaminants to enter the outdoor environment. And so this was really um, right up my alley in, in terms of my interest in anthropogenic impacts on the environment. And also it kind of nicely marries my interest in environmental chemistry with um, studying um, microplastics. So yeah, that's kind of how I got to where I am now. <laughs> um, so would, uh, would you say that the uh, the larger like political and social implications kind of got you really interested in this type of stuff as well? Did you go into it like thinking about that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think one of the most interesting parts or one of the most uh, interesting components of the whole plastic pollution problem is that unlike global climate change, it's, it's kind of more of a bipartisan issue. And 
it's also an issue that we can see and relate to very easily. We've all used the plastic that's in the environment. Um, we're all responsible for this type of pollution in the environment. So it's very easy to connect to and um, become interested in how we can help, um, how I can personally, what, what personally I can do to help stop this, but also, you know, on a larger scale, what can we, I guess, as a species do to help mitigate this problem? I wonder, this is just kind of a off the top of my head kind of question, but in your opinion, does the media do a good job of really summarizing what the microplastic problem is? And do you think there's enough being done in, for example, the the media industry in terms of like movies and documentaries about microplastic? Like, is there enough being done? Yeah, so as I'm sure y'all are aware, the microplastic issue has really blown up in the media in the last like decade or so. The research on it is actually relatively new. The term wasn't actually coined until 2004 um, when these small particles, which have been documented as far back as the 70s, but it wasn't really a widespread um, topic of research until the early 2000s. And the term microfibers, like identifying that there could be different types of and potentially different sources of these microplastics to the environment, the term microfibers wasn't coined until 2011. So this is a relatively new research field. Um, but despite that, there's been a lot of interest. And again, I think that goes back to how we relate to this problem. It's very visually us, <laughs> our impacts on the environment. Um, but I think overall in the media, uh, the coverage is good because people become aware of this issue. And, and in, in general, it does a good job of uh, representing the research and, and, and our understanding of the problem and the sources of this problem. But just like any research field, you know, it's growing and our knowledge on this issue is expanding. And so whether or not the media is quick to adapt to that growing knowledge, you know, it, I think it's just like any other fields. Um, a little bit behind the science, but, you know, it it eventually catches up. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty good. And I also think that it's, it's also kind of uh, good that it's more of a, it's, it's not a politicized as much as, for example, global climate change. And there's not like a mass denial that we're causing plastic pollution. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I really like about um, the scientific community is it, it serves to be like this, this vigilant eye uh, of the threats that are so often easily go unnoticed. Like examples from the past include asteroid detection or environmental lead contamination or ozone depletion. There are a lot of dangers to the environment, including us, that are literally unseen or directly unseeable until it's too late and the disaster is already upon us. But the scientific community as a whole can act as a as a wide eye around the world, millions of researchers, each with a narrow lens and an appreciation for detail, can see the unseen and sound the alarm to those of us who are able or willing to listen. We're fortunate enough to have one of those researchers with us today, you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sophia, could you get into detail about uh, the paper? Absolutely. Okay, so yeah, as, as Dean said, this is a bit of a special episode for us because we're actually used to just summarizing another researcher's paper, but now we're actually talking to the author of this paper. So 
this article that we're talking about is coming from Wired. And so Sam and her research supervisor, Miriam Diamond, uh, work on researching the level and impact of environmental contaminants. When this work on denim microfiber pollution was released, it became quite a sensation overnight. So uh, let's start with the basics, Sam. What is a denim fiber and where does it come from? Yeah, that's a great question. So as I explained before, these microfibers are essentially these small um, fibers that shed from the threads that make up our clothing. So um, if you ever look closely at a fuzzy, a fuzzy sweater and you see the little fibers rising up off of it, those, when they dislodge from your clothing, that's what we're seeing in the environment. And um, another example of this would be if you ever clean out the dryer lint trap in your home, um, dryer lint is, uh, a good majority of it is um, uh, microfibers. And so microfibers, depending on the material of origin, can be classified in different ways. So um, for example, microfibers um, that are made up of plastic materials, so like polyester and nylon, we call those synthetic microfibers. And those have been kind of the, have gotten like the bulk of the focus in terms of the research and um, communication and outreach around microfiber pollution issue. Um, and then, but you also have microfibers made out of other materials, um, including semi-synthetic materials. So these are, these might include, um, natural materials that are modified, um, in a process or produced in a process more similar to those of the synthetic fibers. So that would include like viscose or rayon. Um, and then you have natural fibers. I'm using air quotes here because um, they're they're actually not quite natural, but I'll get into that. Um, but you have natural fibers. So these are uh, things like cotton, linen, wool. They're coming from natural materials. But natural semi-synthetic and um, synthetic fibers, uh, when they are produced, are all produced using a suite of different chemical additives, um, things like uh, flame resistant or, or flame retardants, uh, antimicrobial resistance, stain and water resistance, chemicals that give them the properties that we like our clothing to have. And um, so even the natural fibers are being modified in an anthropogenic way. So um, denim fibers fall into the natural category because they are made up of cotton, but uh, they do also, uh, they are anthropogenically modified. So they do contain a suite of chemicals, including synthetic indigo dye. I, I'm glad you brought up the, the example of actually, because I, I mean, you can't see this because this is just an audio recording, but I just looked at my sleeve and oh my, are there a lot of fibers popping out? Yeah, you could look at like, I'm looking at the dust, uh, my, uh, the dust on my desk and my keyboard right now. And it, I mean, you can mm -hmm. see it, And those are just the ones that you can see. And those are pretty big ones. Um, there are much smaller fibers out there that you can't see. So the ones that are, you know, if you look the sunlight coming in through a window and you see the dust floating, uh, you can see a good example of these fibers airborne um, there. So it's pretty right. wild. Yeah. And I mean, if I understand correctly, your research project started as an attempt to quantify the amount of these denim fibers in different environments, right? So initially, uh, you took water samples from like the deep Arctic Ocean, the Great Lakes and smaller suburban bodies of water near Toronto, Ontario. But uh, why were these your target areas specifically? <laughs> so uh, it's actually a funny story of how this study kind of came about. So uh, Jen Adams, who used to be a postdoc uh, in, uh, in, in the department, um, as well as Lisa Ertl, who's a PhD candidate in Chelsea Rockman's lab and uh, 
ecology and evolutionary biology. Um, and then I, we all study microfibers in different environmental matrices. And so I look at microfibers that come from uh, your household, so your washing and drying uh, primarily, uh, as well as wastewater. Lisa Ertl studies um, microfibers in fish, and then Jen Adams studied microfibers in Arctic sediments. And we were in a meeting one day, the three of us with Miriam, and we were discussing the types of fibers that we were finding in all of our samples. And um, <laughs> it turns out that all of us were finding these uh, cotton fibers dyed with indigo dye. And we didn't know where they were coming from. They were one of the more abundant types of fibers that we were finding in all these random environments. Um, so from the Arctic, uh, Toronto wastewater, the Great Lakes sediment fish. Um, and then we, uh, it kind of hit Miriam, you know, we're all wearing blue jeans. <laughs> she kind of looks down, she goes, oh my God, I think it's coming from blue jeans. And then we realized, so we looked a bit more into it and in fact, Indigo dye is almost exclusively used with cotton in indigo denim. Mm. So um, in order to test that hypothesis that indigo denim was in fact the source of these fibers to the environment via laundering, we um, conducted a series of in-lab uh, washing experiments using blue jeans. Um, and we found that the, the fibers that shed from the blue jeans did in fact match those that we were finding in the environment from suburban Toronto um, up to the Canadian Arctic. Mm, so it was a real, real uh, eureka moment. Yeah. Well, I, and I'm sure, I mean, I don't know what the other fibers look like, but seeing a blue microfiber under like a microscope is pretty exciting, right? I don't know what the other fibers look like, but they must have been really different. I don't know if you've ever looked into your uh, closet or dresser drawers, but you know, your clothing is made up of all different kinds of materials, um, polyester, nylon, cotton, wool, and all different colors from different manufacturers as well, which means that they're going to have different types of chemicals. They're going to have different types of dyes, for example. So you can only imagine what your closet alone, the different types of fibers that it would produce, but just like multiply that by everyone in the world. <laughs> like we see mm -hmm. all different kinds of uh, fibers out in the environment. Um, but it was unusual that we were finding, you know, this one type of fiber to be so abundant. Well, we, we thought it was unusual at the time. And then we kind of realized, wait, blue jeans, everyone wears those. Um, and in fact, it's estimated that at any given uh, time, half the world's population could be wearing denim. So it actually wasn't too surprising that like this was one of the more common types of microfibers that we found out in the environment, but still interesting. Right. Yeah, I think the, the article said that as many as 20% of the total pollutants in like water sediments that you guys found were denim microfibers. So that's a pretty astonishing number. And I mean, what you guys did is differentiate them from other microfibers and other synthetic materials like polyester by Raman spectroscopy or just simple microscopy methods. Could you tell us a little bit about how Raman spectroscopy works and, and why it was necessary to use this for, for the research that you did? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, kind of like I mentioned before, you know, 
you can have all different types of microfibers out in the environment. And so it's really important to have multiple types of clues if you're going to try to distinguish the source of a particular uh, micro type of microfiber that you're finding. So for example, if you have a black polyester fleece jacket and black polyester yoga pants, they're going to shed fibers that look very similar, black polyester fibers. And so for us, what we wanted to do was make sure that we were using multiple lines of evidence and analyzing these fibers so we could be more confident that they were in fact potentially coming from denim blue jeans and we can more narrowly or better narrow down uh, the source of these fibers to the environment. And so uh, what was kind of unique about this study as well is that we did use this combination of Raman spectroscopy and microscopy to analyze these fibers. So in the Raman spectroscopy, what we were doing was looking at the chemical composition of the fibers. So looking at the material that the fiber is made out of. So in the example of indigo denim, cotton fiber, um, as well as looking at any dyes or chemical additives that might be present on the surface. Um, and essentially this instrument works by using laser, a laser and um, looking at how uh, light from the laser interacts with the material and it will interact differently, giving you a, a essentially a chemical fingerprint depending on the type of material. So each type of material will have a different chemical fingerprint that you can compare to a known fingerprint. So that was one of the methods that we use to confirm the type of material, but we also used microscopy to look at the shape of these fibers. Cotton has quite a unique shape. Um, most synthetic fibers uh, are produced in a process called extrusion. So they look similar to, if you've ever seen the pull apart Twizzlers, <laughs> they kind of look like that where they're like extruded. So um, whereas the cotton fibers or the wool fibers, uh, they're not modified in, in that way. Um, so they don't have this like manufactured morphology. So cotton fibers, for example, they have this kind of collapsed, twisted shape. And um, wool looks very similar to if you've ever seen hair under a microscope. But yeah, so we're able to be more confident using these multiple lines of evidence in our identification and therefore um, trying to determine the source of these fibers to the environment. Interesting. So then another test that you ran compared the amount of fibers released from brand new genes, used genes, and mildly distressed genes. So that was the, the differentiating factor. And so as our listeners have probably guessed, the brand new genes release the most microfibers because the used genes have already released a lot of their fibers. But surprisingly, what you guys found is that brand new mildly distressed genes and new ordinary genes released about the same amount, despite the latter seeming to have a lot more accessible fibers because of the fringe. But yeah. Let's look at actual numbers. So your team found that a pair of genes can release up to 56,000 denim microfibers per wash, which is a, a crazy number. But um, just to put that number in perspective, if we imagine like 20,000 people washing a pair of jeans today in a couple of days, like a wastewater treatment facility plant releases that water into like a lake or even directly into the ocean, it'll release... 1 billion microfibers. So are these microfibers too small to be stopped by current filters in, in these plants or? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of the solutions that is, you know, most commonly thought of in terms of stopping microfibers from laundry, specifically washing, 
um, that enters wastewater is, well, can wastewater treatment plants stop them? Can we improve them in some way? But in fact, wastewater treatment plants are able to trap upwards. It, it depends on the plant, um, the type of treatment at the plant, but upwards of 83% to sometimes I've seen 99% in the literature of these fibers. Um, so that means that it's coming in, they're trapping, you know, 83 to 99%. And then what's left is going out. Now what's left, whether it's one or 17%, like that doesn't sound like very much, but even 1%, we're talking about millions and millions of fibers, depending on the amount of effluent discharge from the plant per day. Um, now the bulk of it being caught, really what's happening is the screens are too large to actually catch the fibers, but they are being captured in uh, settling tanks. So as the larger organic materials are settling out in uh, secondary treatment, these fibers can also settle out and they're being incorporated into sewage sludge, which is then dried or in, in the case in Toronto, in some cases it's incinerated, it's not here, but, um, and in many cases it's applied to agricultural fields because it's high in um, nutrients. So where it's been applied to agricultural fields, studies have been conducted looking at this being an alternative pathway for these fibers to make their way into the aquatic environment um, via runoff. And they do in fact find that in fields where sludge has been applied. Uh, when you collect the runoff, you see higher numbers of fibers than in runoff from fields where sludge has not been applied. So it really, though they have quite high capture rates, what we're really looking at is um, just diversion to the terrestrial environment, not necessarily, you know, in, in cases where they're not incinerating necessarily. And so not actually complete capture and removal of these fibers. One thing that really surprised me was that there was more denim microfibers found per, per kilogram of sediment in the samples from the Arctic Ocean than there were in the Great Lakes. So from my understanding, it takes a lot longer for, for with ocean circulation, for example, for the effects of things that we put in the water to, to get to those locations, because it just takes a lot longer for the ocean systems to circulate. What, how would you explain this, this difference? Yeah, so what was interesting for us, um, we're finding them in the Arctic alone, uh, far away from sources indicates that these fibers can undergo a long range transport. And we know that these fibers, despite being made of natural materials, like I said, they're anthropogenically modified with chemicals that might affect their persistence in the environment. Um, so we know that they're sufficiently persistent to undergo long range transport and accumulate in remote environments. And so um, past studies have looked at that have looked at microfibers and sediment cores have documented denim fibers going back, you know, to the 1950s at least. And um, so it's interesting that we did find a higher concentration of these fibers in the Arctic versus the Great Lakes, being that the Great Lakes are closer to, you know, potential sources. But what's interesting about the Arctic environment is that it ultimately acts as a sink for chemical contaminants as well as microplastics and microfibers. Um, so these plastics are accumulating up there. They're not breaking down. Um, well, I, I won't say that. They're taking a very long time 
to break down. Um, and so they're able to accumulate at higher concentrations than what we're seeing in the Great Lakes. So back when when they were trying to tie um, lead contamination to the use of unleaded gasoline, one of the ways that they did that was they looked at where they could find it in the environment and they were able to use like the known amounts of time that oceans circulate or or, or things like that, right? To to determine when these spikes happen. Are you able to do that at all with, with microfibers uh, to determine like when the spike happened, for example? Yeah, so I've there's been, um, like I said, there's one study looking at sediment cores and dating the cores and looking at sections of the cores. Where do you see microfibers and microplastics start to appear? Um, now, I don't think the folks who conducted this study, while they did document... Um, uh, cotton fibers dyed with indigo dye. Um, you know, I look at that and I see, oh, that's denim. Um, but it wasn't necessarily discussed thoroughly in the paper, of course, but, um, in the 1950s, but no study, uh, at this point has really looked for denim fibers specifically. And there's been few that have looked at microfibers, but, um, there's been a couple that have also looked at microplastics and, uh, using the same technique though, of, getting uh, sediment cores in, in the one case it was from ponds in England and then the other case it was um, or the other cases it was uh, sediment cores in the Pacific Ocean um, and trying to see where do we see this input of microplastics we would expect it to be you know in the, in the case of fibers probably when plastic fabrics uh, were you know became more popular like globally. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just, like I said before, it, it's a very new research field. Um, so while we do have all these like great questions, not not too many of them have been thoroughly answered yet. So it's a bit frustrating in that way. Yeah, like like you said, like the, the actual term microplastics became a thing in like 2004, right? Yeah. So I wonder if, I mean, if we look back at like sediment cores, and I mean, I'm sure this we we can recreate kind of this time graph where we can just see at i don't know the the time where rayon or polyester was invented there begins to be like this this exponential curve of microfiber in the environment kind of like the 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 slow i guess warming of the planet over time yeah we'd see maybe would, like a similar thing yeah i i would imagine that in the case of um something like polyester or any kind of microplastics that are being, uh, you know, I, I would imagine that they would match very similarly, just be off a little bit in time to the plastic production curves that we're seeing. Um, and again, that's also exponential <laughs> within the last century. Um, but yeah, I would imagine it would be similar. Right. So, from what I understand and what the article was saying, the microfibers accumulate in the Arctic for multiple reasons. First, it's kind of like the end node of a global conveyor belt of currents. And there's also not much biological life that can process the denim. So this this point kind of hit me. I was wondering how biological life processes this organic material and what happens to it after. Yeah, so I don't know if I can answer this question as, as thoroughly, uh, so I don't study the degradation of these materials in the environment, nor am I a microbiologist, but um, 
and and I think one of my questions, if I were to investigate, you know, the degradation of these uh, materials in the environment, is specifically how do chemical additives, you know, um, affect uh, their degradation? But yeah, so I, I unfortunately can't really answer that question. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, no, no worries. I mean, it's it's a question. Like like you said, the the field is is very new, and I think that's part of the reason why it really made a splash in the news because this is a completely new discovery. So this is this may still be something to still be researched on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it kind of reminds me of when uh, there was that big deep sea oil leak in the Gulf of Mexico. I can't remember what which when it was. Um, it was years ago, but after that. You know, they're talking about all this oil being released into the ocean and it was, it was, you know, it was damaging shorelines for sure. It was, it was killing a lot of wildlife. And then eventually this bacteria kind of like just sprouted out and, and populated that was able to uh, break down the, the petroleum that was coming out. And it, it used it as an energy source. And I, I wonder if that might actually potentially happen not that we we should rely on that or anything but i wonder if it could happen to these these particles that are accumulating all over not just the oceans and waterways but you know in the soils yeah um yeah life finds a way right (laughs) well what's what's interesting about that you mentioned that um i have seen i forget this was a couple years ago uh, a type of bacteria that was discovered in a landfill um, that was able to produce an enzyme that breaks down PET, which is the same material that polyester is made out of. So it was kind of like a pretty big, it, it made the news uh, being as a potential solution, like, oh, should we introduce these microbes into, for example, the oceans to help clean up the oceans? And is that a good idea? And it sparked this question of, you know, the trade off of, while this might be a great solution for removing plastic, is it something that we want to risk in altering an ecosystem that, you know, is a fragile ecosystem? So, but yeah, right. it, it is interesting. Right. It's always a balance. And you kind of want to introduce these things like into a small or maybe even like a test tube first just to see what effects it has and then get onto the environment. Yeah. Do we know any harmful effects of these blue denim fibers? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, we're kind of at the stage where we've we've documented these fibers in the environment. Um, and again, this is just one of the types of fibers that we find. Um, but because most of the re- or the research to date has been focused on synthetic fibers, we're also including uh, and considering non-synthetic fibers. So uh, these anthropogenically modified natural and semi-synthetic fibers as well into our work. Um, So we've documented them in the environment. They're abundant, they're relatively persistent, and they're um, widely distributed. And the next steps uh, for the group was to investigate the potential impacts to wildlife. So we were able to, uh, like I said, my my co-author and colleague Lisa Erdo in EEB, she documented an ingestion of these uh, microfibers in fish collected in the Great Lakes. And so she's currently conducting studies on the effects of synthetic and non-synthetic um, microfibers on invertebrates and fish in the Great Lakes, looking at, I think, a variety of different endpoints, including reproductive and, um, yeah. So she, she's investigating that, yeah. 
Oh, interesting. I'm interested to see the results of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so do you still have blue jeans yourself? <laughs> yeah, I love this question. I probably get asked this in like every interview. I think it's great. I, I still wear blue jeans. I'm not wearing blue jeans right this minute, but they are one of my favorite um, things to wear. So as you can imagine, as a blue jean lover myself, I was a little bit saddened at the news that my blue jeans uh, released, you know, because I was doing the washing. So I realized, oh, my God, the blue jeans I threw in were very similar to the blue jeans I own. And and, and realizing that literally my blue jeans will shed 50,000 fibers per wash um, was a little disheartening. But um, I don't, you know, I still wear blue jeans. I'm more conscious of the impact, uh, especially how global the impact um, of these fibers in terms of health how really how far they they travel in the environment is really eye-opening to me um and i still you and and now i'm i'm more aware of that so i try to be more conscious of my washing habits and doing what i can to help um reduce the amount of microfibers that are released from my blue jeans but all of my clothing at least in the washing where i have more control washing and yeah this kind of leads to like a discussion of what what is what has a bigger impact, personal, individual decisions that people make in their everyday life or like top down changes from from governments, from industries, um, regulations that need to be in place? What like there's so many things that people can do individually for sure. But I feel like, yeah, the, the regulations may be way more impactful. Yeah, I think this is also an interesting question, um, not just in terms of microfibers themselves, though that, that's kind of what I, I'll focus on because that's what I know more about. But um, it, it's also a big discussion in the microplastic, plastic pollution, you know, field in general. Um, but I, when it comes to microfiber pollution, I don't necessarily see it as a uh, top down, uh, bottom up, you know, approach because there's no silver bullet solution. Uh, the solution's multifaceted and will include everyone from government, um, industry, consumers. I mean, there's uh, a number of different ways that we can reduce microfibers that are being released from our clothing and no way, you know, no one way is going to stop all microfibers. So it really is important to, instead of looking at one solution is trying to adopt as many solutions as we can to help mitigate this form of uh, pollution from entering the environment. So for example, on a consumer level, what we found was that in the example of blue jeans, though, again, this applies to all of your clothing and blue jeans are by no means the problem, <laughs> the problem garments. But um, we know that we can wash our, jeans less often or um so for example blue jean manufacturers recommend that you only wash your jeans once a month because washing uh and drying are actually really harsh processes on fabrics and so if you ever bought um like a shirt uh like a fast fashion shirt from like h&m or forever 21 or something um they wear out after you know so many washes um and that's because laundering is so harsh, uh, you cause loss to those fibers. So if you want to protect your garments and reduce the amount of microfibers that are shed, you wash less often. Um, And you also can uh, invest in maybe a number of different technologies, depending on your setup 
uh, for washing and drying at home. But um, there's washing machine filters that uh, work well uh, for trapping fibers. Um, there's also in bin technologies that you can use, whether they're bags or this fun little thing called the Cora ball that you can toss in with your wash to trap some fibers. And then we also found through our study is that used jeans shed less than new jeans. And this holds true to other garments as well, according to research in the literature. And um, so we know that uh, textile waste is a global problem. Uh, so I would recommend buying secondhand. If you're in the market for a new pair of jeans, go down to your favorite thrift shop. Um, and one, you're buying local and also you're buying jeans that, or any kind of clothing that might've been otherwise destined for a landfill. So, um, yeah. And, and if you're, you know, instead of throwing out your jeans, maybe try to find a friend who can use them or you right. know, recycle them or something like that. I seem to remember back in when we were, when they were talking about reducing water usage, one of the suggestions that they came up with was, uh, to freeze your, your clothes. And that like kills all the, uh, the bacteria that may be on your clothing. And so that you have to wash it less often, if as long as there's yeah. not like actual dirt and mud on there, that freezing could be a more friendly, water-friendly replacement for that. Yeah, I, I've heard that, but I've never read like research on it. So I don't know like how well it holds up, but I, I've had a friend that does it or that has done it or has talked about it in the past. Um, and it worked for her, uh, but I don't know, you know, what soil level becomes that you don't want to like, you know, that it doesn't work so yeah. well, you don't want to stick it in your freezer. Maybe not so great but, um, for your white clothing. Yeah. And like anything that can help like reduce the number of washes. So if, you know, you accidentally spilled something on your jeans, like try and spot treatment to remove that stain versus throwing the whole pair in the wash can help oh, as well. True. I think that you can use your research to really, um, what is it, to, to advertise certain washing machines over others. I think you can probably get a nice product deal uh, if, you, if your next research project is comparing the amount of microfibers that are released by one washing machine or another. Well, yeah, I mean, along the lines of washing machines, um, we do know that if you happen to be in the market for a new washing machine... <laughs> Um, past research has shown that uh, front loaders shed less fibers than top loaders. And the, the idea, two hypotheses for this, uh, whether or not the central um, stirring, um, um, but that central like bar that's in your top loading washing machine that helps stir everything. Uh, I forget what it's called, mm -hmm. but um, that actually might produce more fibers, just uh, how your clothes run up against it. And then also top loaders use a lot more water than front loaders. And they think that your water to fabric ratio is actually really important for how many fibers come off during the wash. So for example, if you have a lot of water and not a lot of fabric, it'll release more fibers than if you have a full load of laundry, you know, compared to the water. So just small things like that to keep in mind in, in your, you know, weekly or whatever washing habits uh, that might help. Yeah, you hear that, people? Get front-loading washing machines. Nice. That's what Sam Athey says, recommends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we've asked this question to our guests several times in the podcast, but we wanted to hear from you uh, about the importance of outreach for scientists. How important is this for, for you? 
Yeah, so I think that science outreach and communication is one of the most important responsibilities of scientists. So we're conducting all this great research, we're answering questions, but that doesn't mean a whole hell of a lot if you're not, you know, if you're not breaking it down, that, that information down in a way that the public can readily understand. So I study, you know, the microfiber side of things is, uh, it, it's a lot easier, I think, for people to really visualize and understand than the chemical aspect of things. People are really scared of chemistry. And so when I'm, when I'm thinking about, you know, um, whether it's like uh, doing outreach with uh, the U of T trash team or creating lesson plans for them and stuff. I, I want to get people interested in chemistry because I'm interested in it. So I, I try to think of ways that can make it more accessible in terms of you know the terminology we use. How do we explain it? How many ways do we explain it? And, and this kind of thing, like I go by the rule, if I can't, if I explain this in this way to my grandmother and she can't understand, and granted, she's a smart woman, but still, <laughs> if she can't understand, then, you know, I'm, I need to go back to the drawing board. I need to break this down a little bit more. And it's quite challenging um, in, 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 in chemistry, but it, it is definitely something that's important in, in, in one of our responsibilities, I think. And, and we're, we don't really talk about that enough as scientists. I don't know how to top that. But uh, let's, uh, let's, I guess let's move to the last couple of questions we have for you. We each have a question. And my question is, if you could solve one scientific mystery that really interests you, whether it's in the earth sciences or, or whatever, what would it be? Oh my gosh, that's a really good question. Yeah, okay. I, I don't know if this is, um, okay, I don't know if this is scientific a scientific question or if how I pose it will be scientific enough, but I know, okay. So I don't know, like physics and like that fascinates me, but I don't understand it. So what I would, I, I guess what I would like to know more about slash, I don't think people have discovered it, but I've been watching a lot of that show dark on Netflix Ooh, and it great show. the topic of like, time and wormholes and stuff and i know that wormholes are real but like how do they work with like time and like uh, maybe this is too like science fictiony but could you potentially use them for something like time travel or like yeah but th that that whole thing really fascinates me i find that really interesting <laughs> and i don't because you know i i realize i guess i i learned that they're real and I always thought they were science fiction, but I'd like to know a little bit more about that in terms of like, is the time travel aspect of them like all also yeah. science fiction or is that, is there some truth to that? Like there, you know, when I hate it when people put down on science fiction because all, all science was once science fiction, you know? Yeah. It's, it's fiction that attempts to, to have some grounding and lots with lots of possibilities. I, I yeah, I, I really appreciate questions that science fiction stories can can really pose to us both as a culture and also as, as individuals. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on the wormhole thing, Sam. I still haven't gotten past the Matthew McConaughey's explanation in interstellar. I think that's as, that's as far as my understanding goes. <laughs> yeah. Like interstellar, I don't, I don't like what I, I want someone to explain the fifth dimension to me. I don't understand that. And I don't like, Oh my gosh, yeah. It's just so many questions about like that a physicist, I feel like I want to sit down with them over a cup of coffee and ask them a lot of questions. <laughs> nice. Well, maybe maybe this will be the answer to your, to the next question, but if you weren't an earth scientist, who would you be? 
if I wasn't an earth scientist, so if I wasn't an earth scientist, I actually, I spend a lot of time doing this in my free time as well. I would, I would study history. It's always been a close backup of mine. Uh, my interest in science has been primary, but my interest in history has been a close second. And, and particularly I'm interested in, um, history from the the perspective of women and how I learned history, which obviously was not necessarily coming from the perspective of women or a feminist view of history necessarily. And then thinking about that through a feminist lens and like the differences there, I think are really interesting. Um, but yeah, I think I'd be a historian. It's very cool. Yeah, I like that. yeah, that's a good answer. Well, Sam, I'm glad you brought up, uh, viewing history through the lens of women, because uh, our quote actually comes from Rachel Carson, who is an American marine biologist, maybe maybe the most famous uh, woman. Definitely a role in... model of mine, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and she, so she wrote the book Silent Spring, which is a really huge uh, piece that I guess got started, that kind of, I guess, catalyzed the environmental movement. And so this is a quote from her. The human race is challenged more than ever before to demonstrate our mastery, not over nature, but of ourselves. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Food for thought. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for being with us today, Sam. No problem. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you to our listeners. And we hope to see you tune in next week for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. 